Welcome to the podcast that will bring the pages of Elephants in Tea magazine to life. Never heard of us? We're the only magazine written for and by the adolescent and young adult cancer community. We like to call everyone in our community our herd. So, welcome to the herd. Although this club is not one that you're glad you joined, knowing you're not alone in what you're going through and hearing from people who get it can really help. With this podcast, you can bring your herd with you on the go. Welcome to AYA Cancer Unfiltered, spilling the tea with our herd. I am here with Becky Holden. She is one of our amazing authors from the Dear Cancer issue this year. Thank you for being here, Becky. Good morning. I I am excited to chat with you. I'm excited to hear kind of more about your cancer experience. Um, and also, I really want to dive into your incredible poem that is published in this uh, issue of our magazine. Um, it was just beautifully written and, and a lot of the lines really like jumped out at me. So we're going to get to that eventually. But I'd love if you could just start and share just a little bit about your diagnosis so that um, our listeners can learn a little bit more about you. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, so I was uh, diagnosed at the age of, while well, I was turning from 37 to 38, I um, became ill just before my 38th birthday and had my official diagnosis after a couple weeks after turning 38. So um the doctor had suspected I had cancer after my uh, initial kind of visit at Emerge. Um, and then the follow-up, I had been referred to a gynecological oncologist um, who suspected I had cancer, but my official diagnosis wasn't until after my surgery when they actually had my tumors biopsied. And at that point, they were able to tell me that it was high grade serous ovarian cancer stage 3C. Um, so my cancer had spread um, not only through my ovaries, fallopian tubes and cervix, but also um, in outside of my pelvic space. So up towards my diaphragm and my colon. And uh, there was two fairly large um, tumors that were compromising the ability of my uh, ovaries to have any structure anymore. Um, and so I went through a successful debulking surgery as well as a, I'm, I'm going to try to get this right. The enunciation, um, salpingo-oophorectomy, meaning they removed fallopian tubes, ovaries, uterus, and, uh, cervix. Uh, so, um, after my surgery, I then began my uh, chemotherapy cycles. Uh, so I did six cycles of carboplatin and a paxil-taxil um, mix, which is pretty standard for frontline um, infusions for ovarian cancer. Um, it's really common for ovarian cancer to be diagnosed in fairly late stages just because of the uh, symptoms are fairly insignificant leading up and there is no screening. And so I think it's, I, I, I also part of sharing on this podcast, I also want to bring awareness to ovarian cancer because of the late stages that it's often diagnosed. Um, and it's not something I don't think we talk about as much. Um, and so it can just be easily 
um, dismissed. I had had pretty severe bloating for a number of months. Um, that was just, you just think, oh, I ate something wrong. I'll try something different. Uh, it's just, I thought I maybe had IBS. Um, I had some incontinence. So I was noticing my urgency to urinate was much quicker. And this, I had, I had talked to a couple healthcare professionals. Again, it was just strengthening your pelvic floor. It's probably your age. Um, back pain is another one. Um, that again, and a lot of it, I think too, was just dismissed because it's like, oh, it's your age. It's something that you need to do. Uh, and thankfully when I went into emerge, um, the eMERGE doctor was incredibly responsive. And between my emergency room visit to my surgery was four weeks. And during, and because I was diagnosed during COVID, that was even more um, exceptional that my care moved so quickly as so many surgeries and um, doctor visits were being delayed and canceled during that time. Uh, so, uh, following my six rounds of chemo uh, in September 2021, I my CT scans determined that I was no evidence of disease or NED. And so I was put on to a maintenance drug called, uh, it's a PARP inhibitor, which is a fairly new medication to prevent uh, or reduce the length of time, sorry, to to lengthen the amount of time until you have a real recurrence for ovarian cancer treatment. So, um, and they seem to be working uh, until January of this year when we found some new and growing tumors. And so I started uh, a new regimen of chemo at the end of March of this year. So just jumping back into the chemo world again. <laughs> oh boy. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. And I, I want to note um, what you said about wanting this to be a big part of spreading awareness, which I think is so important. And I was going to actually ask you, as you were sharing that, I was just curious what your symptoms were, because all of those things you listed being a woman, you know, those are things we experience monthly with our period. Like there, there are different, different, um, things that we can kind of excuse those, those symptoms to be, which I think is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to kind of pinpoint. Um, so at what point, like, what was it that you were like, no, this is not just something normal. Something's not right. What, what kind of pushed you to that? So I had had a bit, my, my symptoms were a bit more consistent. So that was also the piece that kind of kept, I'd be like, really uncomfortable for three or four days. And then I'd have a day where I felt okay. So I'm like, Oh, it's fine. It's going away. And then, um, I was able to like have a virtual call with a doctor because I, I don't have, I didn't have a family doctor at the time. I didn't even know, like, other than going to emerge what my options were. And it didn't feel like an emergency room visit. I'm like, Oh, they're just going to send me home and say like, you know, stop eating something or whatever. So um, I end up getting a virtual call with a doctor. Uh, that doctor was kind of like, there's really nothing I can do because you probably need an ultrasound. So contact, you know, either go to emerge or contact your family doctor to get a referral. So then again, I was like, nothing's really changing. So I called my uh local clinic and they were able to do a virtual appointment with a locum. He kind of said the same thing. He's like, you're going to need an ultrasound. Um, I can book you in for 
I can probably get you one, but it's going to take almost a month. And I was like, okay. He's like, and, but he said, he's like, however, if the pain increases, um, you need to go to emerge. And so I think getting his validation really helped that like, okay, this isn't just, I don't know, this isn't, you know, this is, this is worthwhile going to emerge. So actually that evening of having that call with him is when I went to emerge. And so in between that, my last period had been excruciatingly painful, like, and it was also very short, like it lasted about less than 24 hours, but the pain was something I'd never experienced before. Um, I had more trouble and more pain with evacuating. And so after I had my call with him in the morning, um, that evening I went to the washroom and it felt like I was peeing razor blades and there was so much discomfort and pressure in my lower abdomen I was like I think this is what he means if this gets more painful this is the call um and so when I went to the emergency room they always ask right like what's your pain level and while we were driving to the hospital we were behind three ambulances and I'm in a fairly rural area with so that was like oh great. I'm going to be in eMERGE for the next four hours before a doctor sees me because clearly there is a lot of things happening. And so they asked me what my pain level was. And I remember saying eight and, and then immediately being like, that's a little dramatic. Like that's kind of ridiculous, but in them, cause I wasn't feeling pain consistently. And it was just when I would go to the bathroom that the pain was so bad. And so the clerk uh, said, oh, that should get you seen fast. And then I was like, oh man, like, I hope I'm not being like overdramatic. Like, so again, it's that like understanding of pain and how we value it was really important. And uh, anyways, I was seen fairly quickly, like within an hour, um, like I mentioned, and I can't say enough about how it was a locum at the time, an emergency doctor specialist um, from Ottawa that happened to be there. So he actually did a full pelvic exam on me in the emergency room and had me in for an ultrasound the next morning, just because our ultrasound, um, the diagnostic clinics had already been closed by then. Uh, so the next morning had an ultrasound and then a CT that night um, to reveal some pretty gigantic masses. <laughs> wow. So, so it really was you kind of advocating and saying like, no, this is, this is not normal. This is really listening to your body and um, I think that was really important. And like you said, I'm still just so shocked with where we are with medicine and the healthcare system. Like how, how is there no screening for ovarian cancer? It's just, it, it blows my mind. Um, yeah. Especially because as you were talking, you know, the cancer that I had, I ended up finding out that I do have a gene that does have some implications to ovarian cancer. So I recently, um, had my fallopian tubes out, um, because they they say that that's often where ovarian cancer originates, but we really can't say or scan or anything. So um, I just, I feel for you because I think it's just such a um, a cancer that really deserves more awareness and, and um, we got to figure out how to scan people for it really, honestly. Um, so thank you for sharing all of that. Thank you very um, much. Yeah. Would you say that your feelings towards cancer have kind of like ebbed and flowed throughout your whole experience or, or have you kind of had the same feelings towards it the whole time? Um, I definitely ebb and flow. Like I, <laughs> I think sometimes it just feels surreal. Like what is going on with my body and how is this real? And I've tolerated chemo 
fairly well. Like my, my side effects have been minimal, minimal compared to what I hear um, my like peers have experienced. My mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer four years before I was. So I also witnessed her, um, her journey and like her experience with all of that. So just kind of like that awareness that this is happening and she's five years out now and, um, has no evidence of a disease. So that's very exciting. Um, and also encouraging and yeah, like sometimes I just get really angry and sometimes you go down the path of like, what did I do wrong? Like you start questioning every single choice, like, what am I eating? How much am I on my phone? Like, where do I live? Is there mold in my house? Am I close to like some kind of radiation? Like there's just so many, sometimes like logical, but then like illogical. And also just things that like, this is where we are today. So I can't go back. Um, yeah. And then moments, right. Of being scared, um, moments of like, I should be doing something bigger with my life now that I've had this. It's, there's so many things that just kind of percolate in your head and, you just have to kind of come back and ground and look at this day and what, what you can do this day. <laughs> oh, it's so well said, Becky. I feel like, um, first, I'm very glad to hear that your mom is, is doing well. Do you, do you have a genetic disposition? Have you been tested at all? Or is that? Yeah. So they did genetic testing while I was in the hospital and actually my gynecologist oncologist said, he specifically said, if I was a betting man, you're going to have a genetic link because my aunt also passed away from breast cancer when she was, um, in her late thirties. Um, and I, I lost an, uh, an uncle to a brain tumor. And so there's some connection all there. So he said, for sure, you're going to be genetic, but my mom had gone through genetic testing. And so when she went through genetic testing, hers was clear. And so I didn't bother going through genetic testing. Cause I'm like, Oh, hers is clear. There's no point. I don't really need to do it. And mine was also clear. So there is no um, genetic link, but I always have to kind of keep reminding myself and the genetic counselor was excellent. Like she, um, shared to still be very diligent, uh, because I don't have children and I ha only have nephews. She said that that's, that's good. Um, but even for my brother should be mindful about making sure they're getting the prostates checked because of the connect connection between ovarian prostate and breast cancer. Um, and genetics is a, such a new science, right? So there could just still be some genetic link out there, but, um, it's just one of those things where it's kind of like, or just really crazy luck. Right. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so. totally. And, and like you said, genetic, that, that whole area of science is definitely, um, developing on a daily basis because the way mine worked out is when I was originally genetically tested, um, all of them came back clear. Two of them came back. I was like, mm, maybe these could be, but we don't really have enough science to back it up yet. And then it wasn't until like two years later that I got the call. So knowing that how much changed in just those two years that they were like, oh, actually, <laughs> we can actually connect this now. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that's good advice to just remain diligent, even though your your testing was was all clear, which is a good thing. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's also good just awareness to be sharing as well. Um how, if you could kind of sum up your feelings towards cancer in this moment, how, how would you feel? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know how I feel about it just because sometimes it just feels like, it just feels like an outer body experience. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't make 
feel like mine some days, like even yesterday, sitting hooked up to chemo or just kind of there and chit chatting with the nurses. I was the only one in there for a couple of hours. And it's just kind of like, oh, I'm getting chemo. Mm. Like what, mm-hmm. what? I'm not just like sitting here reading my book, having a nap. Like, yeah, I just, it just feels surreal. Like I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I think that's a very real uh, response. So I appreciate that for sure. Um, if you could think back to, you know, 2021, do you have any advice of, of what you would tell yourself before you were diagnosed? Um, I think just like giving my myself permission um, to sort of process it in my own way was really helpful. Like even just because of the way I chose to tell people, um, I texted a lot of really close friends, which I felt a little bit bad about, but then feedback from them, they said, actually, no, I'm really glad that you texted me. I'm like, I wasn't ready to cry about it. Crying also was uncomfortable, like caused physical pain. And so I wasn't really ready to cry about it. And I knew I couldn't hear, I couldn't hold their emotions, nor would they want me to. And so by texting people, a lot of people actually said like, thank you. That gave me space for my own reaction. Um, Although like it kind of feels cold, but uh, so, yeah. So I think just like, yeah, keeping that in mind, like be compassionate to yourself and just like tell people how you want to on your own time frame, And that's, totally fine and just let people help you all great advice um I love how you said that how you said you know you didn't have the the capacity to hold their emotions which I think is a big that was very difficult um I'm just reflecting back and and you know people that love you and are around you try their best to stay strong for you so that you can kind of process it yourself but they obviously have their own feelings about it so Um, I don't find that to be cold at all. I actually think that that, um, was probably helpful. It sounds like it was helpful to you and also to the people in your life. So, um, yeah, I think that's great advice. I, I would love to kind of dig into your poem. Um, like I said, at the beginning, there, there were so many lines that really like jumped out at me. So one of them was you showed up, shook my world immersed me in your demands and then you spit me out to figure out what's next. And as I was reading that, I just, it was such a powerful visual the way you wrote it. Um, Could you share a little bit about how you've been kind of navigating that figuring out what's next part of your life? Yeah. And I mean, it, when I wrote this, I was, I thought I was still in the clear. (laughs) So it's even now like changing again. When I was first diagnosed, like I was really sick before my surgery um, and wasn't doing a lot. So like everything sort of stopped and then you have surgery. So you're in post-op care and then you have chemo. So everything sort of stopped. And it was still, we were pretty, when I was diagnosed, Ontario was going into their yet another lockdown. And so everything had stopped again for everybody. And so it's, it took me a while to sort of get out of that. I am living, I'm here living and I need to keep living. I had a bit of a setback um, last winter with some blood issues and had to have a blood trans, a couple blood transfusions. And, and then, so again, those little ups and downs that make you feel like, again, things just stop and all I can do is take care of my body and all you're doing is focusing, taking care of your body. And it really 
this winter, I really started noticing like, oh, I'm starting to feel like myself again. I feel like maybe I could work full time. I'm starting to feel like I can, I have the energy I need. My body can move. And it just really hit me like, oh, I don't have an excuse anymore for not doing. Um, and really thinking about like, what is all of the things that were existing in my life before cancer, like they're still here. The fact that I still don't really know what I want to do for work or the fact, you know, like relationship wise, where I'm living, all of those things that sort of percolate, um, they're still here. And I kind of think I need to do something about them now. Um, and just like that processing, right? So uh, I've been processing more around like the anger, um, think uh, around like trying to understand what it means to not be able to bear a child like that was something I never even understood if it was going to be on my path but then having that taken away from me kind of like I was like trying to figure out how I even feel about it and then if I'm grieving grieve if I'm okay with it be okay with it and that comes in ebbs and flows um thinking about like work things like I, I have a very flexible job. I work part-time and I have full benefits and like trying to keep like, that's so much more important when you're dealing with treatments, needing to take sick time, short-term disability, having prescriptions paid for. Um, and so kind of all balancing all of that with like, is this really what I want to do with, this is the best thing for me practically right now. And I never know when my energy is going to take a slam. If I have to have surgery or again, um, and how that looks with like keeping up with a job. I also work remotely so I can show up in whatever I need to show up with. And if I'm not feeling great, you know, it's a little bit easier than trying to rally and like drive and get out of your house and being around other people. So, yeah, so I don't know how I'm doing it. I'm doing it and it's changing every day. And um, yeah, but this, I think a, a, re, a recurrence is definitely a different monster to deal with. It came with a lot of different emotional um, turmoil than I, like not really that. Well, I never had it in my, I always was certain I would not have a reoccurrence. I didn't worry about recurrence. I was very much like, no, I'm done with cancer. Like I'll take my maintenance drugs, I'll be good. And then one day I'll stop taking them and life will go on. Um, so having a recurrence not only was quite a reality check, like, oh yeah, I live with ovarian cancer. That's, that's my life. Um, but also just this, like, it's not over and it could come back at any time. And how do I make life choices with that kind of inkling fear, I guess, in the back? Yes, all very valid. I feel like um, the idea of thinking about the future, even if that means like a month from now, um, is very difficult for, for cancer survivors, I think. Um, and I don't know if that ever really goes away, to be honest. Um, I think that we're so not in control that all we can do is go day by day. So I think that that kind of perspective is, is a good one to have because it is, um, you have to base it off of how you feel in the moment. What do I want in the moment? And that's, that's all you can do. Um, I really, I, really resonated, um, with what you said about how, you know, when you're in the thick of treatment, all these other parts of your life 
they don't disappear. They just fade a little bit because they're not your pure focus, but they're still there. And I think that that's something that is really difficult. Like I, I agree. I really couldn't process anything until my treatment kind of wrapped up as well. And um, I think that's just, we're so, our focus is just so different um, when we're at different parts of our, our cancer experience. So I, I think that a lot of people listening will, will connect with a lot of what you just shared. So thank you for that. Um, you had another line and it had a lot of kind of emotions. It said empty, evolved, toxic, limited, weak, and strong, untrusting vessel that betrayed me, surprised me and showed me strength. And I thought that was just so powerful. I loved the like juxtaposition of all the different feelings and emotions that you use and how you wrote that. Um, I was wondering if you could just touch upon that feeling of feeling both weak and strong and empty, but also clear. You know what I mean? Like how I would just love to hear more about that from you. Yeah, I think, um, I, I was physically weak. I had lost 30 pounds, which was mostly muscle mass. Uh, and so, you know, just doing my normal things was difficult. Um, just in my strength, I, we play a lot of tag with my nephews. And so not, I wasn't able to run. I couldn't like, I couldn't move very quickly or fast. And, um, but also like my body showed me how much it could really show up for me, like through it all, it recovered very well. My incision healed really well. I tolerated chemo really well. Um, you know, it's, it's still like I did, I went out, I did my super slow walks every single day just to keep everything moving. And so there's so much strength in that. I feel like mentally, um, I, um, was, you know, I made it through without any major breakdowns. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and just that, like, trying to just be, it's just, our bodies are just so incredibly amazing. Like, it just blows my mind that my body could stretch. I had um, I had significant ascites going into my surgery. And so I looked about four months pregnant and then for, you know, them to remove the masses. And then all of that just went back to like basically normal. Um, so yeah, like, it's just, it's just amazing. I just am amazed how our bodies can just be so resilient while feeling so like being attacked and feeling and not feeling very strong. Totally. Absolutely. You had another line that said hiding was allowed, accepted, hiding hindered growth and yet gave space for growth. And again, I think a lot of people listening are going to relate to this here. So in what ways do you feel like the pandemic kind of shaped your cancer experience? For, um, so yeah, like, so everyone was right, still staying home and everyone was isolated and everyone was doing their work differently. Um, people weren't seeing people. We were still in the, like seeing people only outside and there wasn't a lot of gathering. Um, and so there was this experience that was shared amongst the collective, right? About, you know, not connecting and then also not connecting. People aren't seeing you. So again, it makes this weirdness and how you tell people because you're not seeing them. People aren't seeing you, um, you know, even for work things. Cause I, I continued to work 
all through my treatments and my surgery. I had just started teaching a course right before I was diagnosed. Um, and uh, then I, and I took a couple months off work and then returned to work one day a week for a few months, but I could turn my camera off. I could share, you really had control about how much you shared and with who you shared it with. I wasn't gonna run into someone at the grocery store cause I wasn't going to the grocery store. My, my parents were doing that for me. Um, travel like I wasn't I didn't feel safe flying yet my dad drove 1200 kilometers and came and picked me up to drive me to southern Ontario for surgery and to stay with them for my recovery um so there was this thing where it's it's shared so everyone's like oh yeah I stayed home too and so there was a sense of like oh we're all going through the same thing but it was like but it was hard. Sometimes I'd be like, but I have cancer. Like, it's not just I'm, I'm hiding. Like I also have this really huge thing that I'm also dealing with. So there was, you know, that piece of like, sometimes where it felt like it was undermined it a little bit. Cause like, oh yeah, we're all at home. None of us are going out. Like we're all mm -hmm. like stuck in this weird thing. Um, and then, uh, even just like things at the hospital, right? Like I, I thankfully was able to have two visitors. I don't know how people went through surgery or any hospital stays without visitors. I don't um, either. Because if it wasn't for my dad staying in the hospital with me, I wouldn't have been able to get out of my hospital bed. I don't think most days because they're just, it's staff, nursing staff don't have the capacity to do all the things a patient needs. Um, and so there's like, I was so grateful for that, but I couldn't have a lot of visit visitors. Things couldn't be sent to me in the hospital. Um, again, you couldn't just have people to stop by the same way. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of like, even now going back to chemo, I've had a couple people ask me like, oh, are you allowed to have someone sit in chemo with you? And I was like, well, I don't know. I guess I would have to ask. Like I was just used yeah. to going through chemo by myself and to doctor's appointments by myself, which I was actually okay with. Like, um, during chemo, I didn't mind being there by myself. Like one, I had really, I have really incredible nurses in our oncology department, but also I would just nap or read a book yeah, like right. just there and quiet. So now it's kind of like, oh yeah, I guess someone could come and like visit, I guess. So it's just a weird, like now, now having care, not in a pandemic, I'm trying to figure out what is <laughs> what I'm allowed to do. Yeah, no, that's a hard thing to navigate the differences of, cause I feel like the rules are constantly changing too. So it's hard <laughs> to keep up. Um, but yeah, I, I really like how you said that it felt, well, I don't like that you felt this way, but I, I think you kind of using the word undermined, like your experience was almost invalidated because yes, yes, you were doing the same things as everybody else, but on top of it, you're navigating cancer as a young adult. Um, so yeah, I think that that, um, thank you for, for kind of speaking through that with us. Um, and you had a line at the end that said, pull the blankets over my head and shrink smaller and realize you can't be the excuse anymore. And that was such a powerful line to end your poem with. Um, could you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah. So I think some of that comes back to us talking about like how cancer, the first, the first bit of cancer, right? Everything stops. And like, then you have an excuse. Oh, I don't have to think about that. I have cancer. Oh, I don't have to think about that. Like, I can't, I, I can't move. I can't make a job change. I can't like start a relationship. I can't like risk my finances. Cause, but now, but really like, that's what that hit me this winter. Where I was like, oh, but I have to do all those things. And I, and not, not because they're punishment, because I also need to do all those things. Like I'm a human who is evolving. Like these are things that I need to do. So 
Um, yeah, it was kind of like, as much as you want to hide in bed and just let the, I don't know, I don't want to say let the cancer win, but just kind of succumb to it. And there's going to be days that it looks like that. There was also this really glaring awareness that um, I got big, like, I have big things that I need to do and I need to make decisions and decision-making has always been very difficult for me. And so like, I still have to do those things and to see the potential and the possible opportunities in that and just do them and just like, I've pro I've proved to myself, I can navigate life with doing hard things. So just keep, just keep doing that. So um, yeah, there's just such a like desire on one side, like a desire to hide and it's safe there, but also like a need to be seen in a way that you want to show up. Mm. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like and what that means. <laughs> so definitely takes time for sure. Yeah. yeah. Is, is writing about your experience with cancer, something you do often, or was this kind of a new thing for you? So during the pandemic, I had actually pre-cancer diagnosis had joined like a writing through wellness kind of circle mm -hmm. with a local agency here online. And I really loved it. Um, it was the, the facilitator, she guided us through a few different types of poetry and then we would write and we would share. And then there wasn't necessarily like, if we wanted some feedback, she would give it to us, but most of it was just really positive. Like everybody being really supportive and about like just finding different ways of writing and expressing our emotion. And so I've always kind of wrote, like I've always had a journal and a diary and always tried to kind of figure out like some, once I moved beyond realizing I didn't have to write about my day and I was like, could write about feelings mm. and write a different way. Um, and then I would do like the, the morning pages where I would just do free writing or spirit writing. So it's always kind of been a way I, for an outlet for me to process. Um, but that, that writing through wellness circle that we did, I feel like it exposing me to poetry was really, instrumental for me feeling and seeing different ways to write mm -hmm. um, and so I had really played around with that and then well after my diagnosis just kind of like didn't really write didn't really do anything kept brought my journal to the hospital with me didn't write at all um just again I think that inability to process like this is just happening mm -hmm. um and um but yeah, then afterwards kind of, again, going back to writing and using different prompts and I've attended some of the um, writing workshops through your organization. Um, and yeah, I just, it's, I found it really, really helpful to move energy out, move emotions out and just capture bits and pieces of my story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. I, I am wondering if you have any advice for someone who like has never tried it, but maybe is interested in trying to write about what they're going through. I think just not feeling like there's restrictions to it, like writing in a way that makes sense to you. And that might be in bullets. It might be in short sentences. It might be in an article type where you're writing full sentences. Um, I was asked last year in preparation for World Ovarian Cancer Day, if I wanted to like write about my 
kind of share my cancer story. And I realized in writing that a year ago, I was kind of going through and trying to capture what had actually happened. I finally emailed the woman and said, I'm not ready to do this. Mm -hmm. um, it felt like too much. I wasn't ready to capture it all. And I don't know if I was ready to like share it to mm -hmm. the world yet. Like it's so vulnerable, even, even writing this poem and then putting it out there um, was incredibly vulnerable. Um, but I also realized that it's important for me to do that. It's important part, again, stepping out of this hiding, but, but also maybe like, I think that, you know, the comments that you've made have been so encouraging being like, these really resonated and these, these kind of spoke some of my feelings. So I think just being free, like not having structure, do it on blank paper, do it on line paper, whatever, mm -hmm. draw a picture, just like that movement of pen to paper, um, offers so much healing and, uh, just do it in a way that makes sense to you. And maybe something comes out that you want to share. And maybe it's just for you. I think that that like, it doesn't have to be even about other people. Um, but I do encourage anyone if they can go to the place where they feel safe sharing that I would encourage them to, cause it's pretty liberating. <laughs> it was a big, it felt like a really big leap for me, even just sharing. I emailed this poem to a friend of mine who majored in English and I knew that she wrote a little bit. And so I sent it to her being like, can you just like look through this and see if there's any, like, do you have any recommend recommendations or just any feedback? And she sent it back and just sending it to her was such a big, mm -hmm. A big deal and then she was of course gave really encouraging feedback but also some help just with changing some of the language so it read a little bit better um which was really helpful so um yeah but anyone I just I for me it was a really powerful way just to process and will continue to be and mm -hmm. yeah wow. thank you for sharing all that and I know that we definitely are very thankful and appreciative of your vulnerability, because like you said, it's, it's not easy. And I really also appreciate that you shared that, you know, you weren't ready a year ago. It didn't feel right. So I, I love that advice. I think that's very important for people to understand that. Yes. When you put things to paper, they, they can be just for you. There is no pressure to share. If you are ready to share, if you want to share, yes, it is very liberating. It feels great. Um, but only do so when, when it feels right. And I think that that's great advice. So thank you, Becky. Um, if, if somebody's listening and they want to learn more about you or reach out, or, um, maybe their story sounds similar and, um, is there a way that people can connect to you? Yeah. So in true fashion, I feel like the theme, um, I'm not really present on social media. <laughs> that's part of like that kind of figuring out how to navigate social yeah. media. I feel about it and everything. Um, but I did, I, I put together an email address because I do also recognize the importance of connections. And I've really appreciated the people that I have been connected to. And I also really appreciate the people who have been on social media that I've been able to follow. Like I've learned a lot for them from them and I love being able to connect to them. I just know for me, that doesn't feel right right now. Um, mm -hmm. But anyone is welcome to email me and it's beingbecky.oc at gmail.com. Um, and so if anyone has questions or wants to share, I'm happy to receive an email that way. So, Oh, thank you, Becky. I'm going to make sure I put that in the show notes so that um, if people want to, they can find you. Um, and I just, I want to thank you for your time. I kind of how I started this interview was saying thank you for this beautiful piece of writing. And I'm going to say that again, because it really is um, just a wonderful, wonderful poem. And um, we're very 
lucky to have it as part of our dear cancer issue this year. So thank you. And thank you for taking the time to chat with me um, today and spreading more awareness about ovarian cancer. Uh, I just really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Are you a patient or caregiver with something to say? Make your voice heard by participating in paid surveys, interviews, and online communities. Start talking to the right people. It's free. Rare Patient Voice accepts rare and non-rare diagnoses. In celebration of their 10th anniversary, their studies now pay at a rate of $120 an hour. Sign up today at rarepatientvoice.com slash E and T. That's rarepatientvoice.com slash E A N D T. Thanks for listening. We hope you feel a little less alone in what you're going through. Be sure to tune in next time, but until then, visit www.elephantsandtea.com for more relatable content.